everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. At least I'm your host for this first introduction. Because today's a celebration of Attendance Bias. This has been one year, August 11th, one year since the show debuted on Apple Podcasts. The show actually premiered a few days earlier than that, but since Apple Podcasts makes up somewhere around 75% of the podcast downloads, I consider the day it appeared on that outlet its one-year anniversary. So it's been a full year of episodes. I'd like to thank you so much for listening. In celebration of this one-year anniversary, I thought it would be fun to have a guest host so I could take a break and be the guest, and we were lucky enough to be able to have previous attendance bias guest Justin Bruce to be the guest host today. Justin previously appeared on an episode to talk about July 7th, 2000 in Burgettstown. As a favor to me and to the podcast as a whole, Justin decided to come on and not ask me about an attendance bias show or a jam, but really to just kind of give some background information about myself, who I am as a person, as a music fan, and of course, as a fish fan and as a podcaster. So today, you're not going to hear about a specific show, but you'll probably hear about seven or eight different shows, as well as different bands, different types of music, and get a look behind the curtain at what makes attendance bias happen. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode as a guest host of Justin Bruce and your guest guest, Brian Weinstein, for today. Justin, thank you for being today's guest host on Attendance Bias. It's nice to get a break for once. Yeah, Brian, you need to sit back, relax, let someone else do the heavy lifting. Although, hopefully, I have come up with some questions that'll help your audience you know, get to know you a little more. I feel like we all know you a lot because we listen a lot, but I, I had questions, so I've come armed with them. Well, I hope that I have answers. <laughs> well, <laughs> satisfy you. We will find out, but of course, it goes without saying. Big fan of the podcast. Love hearing, you know, everyone's attendance bias stories, which is just such a great concept for a podcast since we all know about attendance bias, but it's nice actually hearing about it from folks. I figured let's go back to the beginning. I mean, we know you're a big music fan, but how did that sort of love for music germinate? Where did you grow up? Can you take us back to young Brian? First, I've said this a number of times, but I grew up on the south shore of Long Island in a town called Merrick, which is just outside New York City, about 45 minutes drive without traffic. And my first memories of music is being in the backseat of my mom and dad's car. They had a Pontiac and a Chevy. And I remember when I would be in the backseat, we listened to one of two radio stations. We would listen to either CBS FM, which is the oldie station in New York. So pretty much up to 1960, probably. And that was it. And my dad would always put that on when he was driving. So stuff like don't know much about biology, uh, the temptations, songs like that, that are just easily earworms that no matter how old or young you are, they get immediately hooked into your brain and they're still there. So that was, that's the oldest, oldest memory. And then when my mom was driving, we would put on WPLJ, which is 95.5, which is kind of like, top 40 radio, but like uh, PG top 40 radio, like somewhere between easy listening and pop. So like human league would be on there. Uh, Billy Joel would be on there, like safe for kids sort of music, as opposed to more cutting edge, like uh, top 40 stuff. Right. And this is like late eighties, these early memories, mid eighties, mid eighties. I would say I was born in 1982. So my earliest memories are probably around 86 or so like uptown girl. 
you know, because I live on Long Island, lived on Long Island. So Billy Joel was just everywhere all the time. Right. So the whole uh, Madison Square Garden fish versus Billy Joel thing, you kind of find yourself in a pickle. No, not even in a pickle because I love them both. And I don't, you know, anyone who has something against Billy Joel, that's totally fine taste wise. But I think he's the greatest also. Wow. I'm not in a pickle. I'm not in a pickle. <laughs> well, and one thing I do know about you because you've mentioned it on the podcast is that you are a big Who fan. Was yeah. that uh, like a, a fandom that germinated as well in the backseat of that Pontiac or that Chevrolet? No, no, that came a little bit later, uh, around 1993. So I was about 10 years old. Actually, side story, talking about Billy Joel, that was when he was on his River of Dreams tour in 1993. And I remember my cousin stayed up all night at the Madison Square Garden box office to get tickets for my whole family, like eight of us. Sounds uh, safe. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> at the time it may have been, you know, it was a time when you could bring a sleeping bag or just lean against a wall for and uh-huh. wait all night for concert tickets early the next morning. And he got tickets for about eight of us to go see the River of Dreams tour. And at the end, Billy Joel always closes with Piano Man, or he used to. Now it might be scenes from an Italian restaurant. But at the end of Piano Man, he the whole band drops out and the whole crowd just sings the chorus because it's like the greatest single-on chorus ever. And I remember my parents or my mom leaning over to me because, as we all know, Madison Square Garden is right above Penn Station. And if you mm-hmm. want to make a train, you got to leave a little bit before to give yourself time to get there. And she leaned over to me and said, we could leave now. And we'll make the train. But if we don't leave now and we stay for the rest of the concert, we'll have to wait at the train station. What do you want to do? And it was in the middle of Piano Man. I remember turning to her and yelling, you could go, but I'm staying. (laughs) And I'm 10 years old. Uh, So so that was like the beginning of my love of live music. And then right around that same time for The Who, Tommy went on Broadway. And my aunt had the Broadway cast recording. And I heard Pinball Wizard like somewhere, maybe around her house or maybe on the radio. And I was so obsessed with that flamenco guitar opening that Pete Townsend plays with that amazing power chord that comes in over like the midway point. Mm -hmm. Something about that really, really spoke to me. So I borrowed the CD. It was a double CD from my aunt. And that just my life could be divided to before who and after who. And that's. That's pretty amazing because, you know, as Fish fans, we're obviously enthusiastic and pretty serious about our music. You know, when I think of the Who, I actually have some similar memories because you and I are not that far apart age-wise. I remember, yeah, the Who going to Broadway in the early 90s and that music kind of making a resurgence. But when I think of the Who, I think of like Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder because he cited them as such an influence. Uh, and, you know, there's certainly some crossover, of course, in the fish community. But for whatever reason, when you say, yeah, I love the who and I love Billy Joel, that, that to me says like, this is a guy who likes what he likes and he is not going to be pinned into any one particular neighborhood musically. And I like, you know, and I hope this doesn't come across as like a snooty indie, like pitchforky kind of way but like that's something that I really admire you know you're not uh you know going on and on about uh the latest this or the latest that you can and you do but you also have these classic rock uh kind of origins from the 80s because you're a child of the 80s just well, yeah. like I am and it's fun because I don't even see that big of a difference between them because before Tommy and even within Tommy the who were a pop band you know they wanted Pete Townsend wanted to write big successful 
pop music like the Beatles or his first influence, I think, was the Kinks, which is why there's so much short rhythm guitar in their early songs. When they released I Can See for Miles and it didn't do as well, I think it reached like number eight in the the UK charts, he was hugely disappointed because he <laughs> saw himself as like as good a songwriter as when in McCartney or as Ray Davies or Jagger and Richards as any other British invasion power duo you could name. And he was, he wanted to be a pop star. And then of course he became a huge concept album, megalomaniac. It's, you know, psycho <laughs> who had a nervous breakdown, but Billy Joel is arguably the pop artist of the late seventies and eighties. So I didn't even see that much separation between them as a listener, because you could sing both their melodies when you're done listening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally see that for sure. I mean, infectious songs are infectious songs, whether, yeah. you know, we're talking about classic fish tunes from the late eighties and the early and the mid nineties, or yeah, Billy Joel from earlier on. So speaking of fish, I mean, you grew up in the Northeast. I feel like your proximity uh, to New York city and new England almost gives you like a head start into fish fandom. How early did it happen for you and and how did it come to be for you? I've mentioned this a few times on the show, but basically, and this probably won't surprise anybody. Uh, I went to a summer camp in Massachusetts starting in like, I think it was 1990 was my first year going. I was eight years old or seven because my birthday is late in the year and it was during the summer. Um, I'm a type one diabetic and there is a summer camp. There's several, but this one is in a town called Charlton, Massachusetts. It's kind of Western Mass, a little Southwest of Worcester, I think. And it's specifically for children with diabetes where it's a regular summer camp with like baseball and they had their own little radio station and a soccer pavilion or a hockey pavilion and tennis courts like any other summer camp. But also they would also teach you how to manage your diabetes, how to measure out uh, meals and how to count carbohydrates and read labels and measure insulin. And so it was kind of a mesh between those two. And that is a big part of my upbringing and my life. So fast forward, I'm probably about 14 years old, maybe 13. And we're going on a field trip from camp from Massachusetts to Mount Washington in New Hampshire, the White Mountains. Mm -hmm. And it's like a four hour drive. It's a long van ride. I was with the older kids. I didn't know a lot of them. So I brought my disc man and I brought live at Leeds. After I finished listening to live at Leeds, I figured, all right, might as well take these headphones off and be a little social. And the driver, the counselor who was driving, put on a picture of Nectar. And I liked it. I was listening. I wasn't really paying attention. And then once Glide came on, that did it. That did it. That was it. And it was all over. I want, I wasn't going to ask him because I was too shy, but I wanted him to play it over and over and over again. And then after Glide, I don't remember the track listing, but between Llama and Stash and Glide and Tweezer and Tweezer Reprise and like this murderer's row of amazing fish songs, I asked him what who it was. I asked him to tell me about it. And I spent the rest of that summer listening to a picture of Nectar the day after I got home from camp, I went to Sam Goody in mm -hmm. the Roosevelt Field Mall and I bought it. It was an expensive CD. It was $17.99, I remember, because hey it's now. a long, yeah, I know, because because it's a long album. It's like 17 tracks. And it was just, that became the soundtrack for the rest of my life, pretty much. So it was Glide that did it. Isn't that crazy? I was thinking that recently because for me, and I'm sure these were, what year about was was that if you can that you figure was, that out 
it was probably 19, somewhere of 96, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. You and I are kind of right in that, that same territory because for me, I just happened to copy a bunch of CDs and copied a live one uh, from a friend. And that was the soundtrack to, I guess, what was then like sophomore year of high school, maybe 96, maybe it was 97. But ever since then, I think, wow, I'm still still really into it. Here we are, you know, 20 plus years later. So that's great. Uh, Not to go off script, but I have to ask, I didn't uh, remember the type one diabetes information. Mm -hmm. Does that impact, uh, obviously, maybe uh, how you're seeing shows even now, you know, as a grown up here? Yeah, in a way it does. And I'll try to keep this short because I could go about it forever. But the short answer is yes, because as a diabetic, I always have to, I always have like questions and checks in my head to make sure I'm prepared for pretty much any given situation. So I've since maybe 2012 or 2015, I've stopped pretty much doing anything um, extracurriculars pretty much at shows, maybe a beer or two. Right. I have to bring some medications in. I have to bring, you know, I have an insulin pump attached to my belt, my belt Mm -hmm. clip. And that always causes questions and delays at, you know, at entrances. Sometimes I got to bring in like little snacks, like fruit snacks or little candies Mm -hmm. to make sure that in case my blood sugar does drop, I have something immediate and accessible. And I I always got to plan ahead. I always got to make sure, do I have something to eat once we get out of the show? Do, you know, do I buy a Coke just for insurance? you know, just to have it with me. So yeah, I always got to think ahead. Am I going to eat before the show? If so, where? If so, when? How far is it to the venue? Do I have everything I need? If something fails, do I have a replacement? It's just, it's this constant checklist, which was why Mexico was the greatest gift in the world because everything was right in front of me and I didn't have to worry about anything. There was no anxiety about my health at all. Yeah. And I guess on account of, you know, your condition that you've kind of got to be the one in charge in your crew or in your, you know, little, little click of, of fans, you're definitely keeping it together because, you know, medically you've got to keep it together. You can't be getting too out of hand. So I'm, I'm sure your posse appreciates that. You're always I'm, the level-headed one. I'm always the driver. <laughs> I'm always driving home. That's, a, that's you are priceless. Well, uh, speaking of, you know, Brian as a fish show going fan, you know, we think because it covers, gosh, decades now uh, of ourselves in our early fandom and the band has stayed with us. Obviously, we're doing a fish podcast here through our adult lives. How <laughs> have you transformed as a fish fan? 1.0 seems like eons ago. 2.0 seems like eons ago. And gosh, even parts of 3.0 are, you know, way in the distant memory. 4.0, I don't care what we call it, honestly. But walk me through your evolution as a fan. Yeah, I, just as parents say that when their kids get older, it's like, oh, it was just yesterday that you, you know, you were in my lap. I feel that way about the early 3.0. Like to me, mm-hmm. Hampton was yesterday, the Hampton comeback. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear it's 2021. So when a show from 2011 comes up, it really doesn't seem so far ago, but it's been a decade, you know, since Bethel, for example, or the Steam New Year's Encore, the New Year's gag. It, 
Oh, it's it's it. I couldn't stop to think about it too much because I'll I'll have a breakdown. Right, but, and honestly, then you go back to like I'm sure some of your first shows because you saw shows back in 1.0, and you think, golly, this seems like literally ages ago. My I don't know about you, but my memories are hazy, and that's just due to the passage of time. Not even you know with respect to anything else. Well, my memories of 1.0 are actually better than a lot of 3.0 because. And I'll get into this probably a little later, but Fish has been so much more accessible and easy in 3.0 than they were in 1.0. Whereas, so 1.0, every show was really precious and they still are, but it was basically a honeymoon period. (laughs) Now that I look back at it, you know, everything was perfect because it was also starting in the late 90s, which I didn't develop a very big taste for, but I know others have. (laughs) <laughs> and right, right. Also, there's some heady fans out there who really appreciate the late 90s yeah maybe one or two but <laughs> but it also coincided musically with like the crest of the band's career because it led up to big cypress my first show was the new year's run of 1997 it was december 29th incredible yeah which is and if you want to talk about attendance bias that is my number one answer I happen to believe it's the best two set show the band has ever played, which is a big conversation to have at any point. <laughs> so I would see them that night. And then I would see, I didn't see them again until the new year's run of 98. Cause I didn't have a car. I was only 15. You know, my parents wouldn't trust me to get in a stranger's car or an older kid's car or once in 99 to Hartford, I took a train to Hartford from Penn station. Cause like none of us had our licenses yet. Wow. And that is so incredible. I mean, my first show, you got into it even earlier than I did. I was 18 and I'm still surprised as a recent high school graduate that my parents let me and a handful of other high school 18 year old friends drive four hours west to go to Pittsburgh and Star Lake and Burgettstown. As a parent myself now, I'm trying to fast forward to when my little kids are 18 and I'm thinking, eh, maybe I'll tag along here just yeah. to keep an eye on things. I so kudos to your parents for granting you a little bit of freedom there. Yeah. I, I think about that occasionally. My birthday's in October and these shows were in December, December 29th. So I was 15 for exactly two months, but I'm not a parent and I'm a middle school teacher. So I, I teach 12 and 13 year olds as a parent, letting your 15 year old get on a 45 minute train ride to New York city Right. And go to a fish concert, no less. <laughs> you know, it wasn't Billy Joel, yeah, which is, you know, stainless steel clean and nothing <laughs> could go wrong there. Sure. But they let me go to concerts at a pretty young age. You know, I remember when I was 13 going to see Stone Temple Pilots and the Meat Puppets at Jones Beach. Wow. With my friend Tim, who was one year older than me. He was 14. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And I mean, you know, in retrospect, how awesome to grow up so close to, you know, the nexus of, of live, you know, live music in New York city. Like what a, what a blessing that yeah, was. Everyone came through New York still does, but yeah. So 2.0 after 1.0, I was in college and just getting out of college to start. I was a little bitter that the band decided to take their break, their hiatus, right. When it was the time where you, in my head, didn't need to be responsible. For anything, you know, you had a car, you, no one had to, you didn't have to explain anything to anyone. You know, I was a good student, so I wanted to be back 
were ever in time of class, but it wasn't a sin to skip a couple classes to see fish. Mm-hmm. And so they were gone for my freshman and sophomore year of college. And that was very disappointing. And they came back for their, well, new, I didn't get tickets for that new year's 2002 show at MSG, but I got tickets for the Cincinnati run, uh, February 21st and 22nd, 2003. And I was I was so excited to see them, but I, I was already more jaded than I was in 1.0 because I remember when they released Walls of the Cave on America Online, AOL, first listen, with this wow. weird embedded media player that took forever to load. <laughs> and we I, I listened to it with my roommate and I immediately did not like Walls of the Cave right away. How do you feel about it now? It's usually the set one closer, so I'll get a head start on the bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I do prefer pebbles and marbles about twice as much as walls of the cave. I don't know if that's overexposure and I don't know about you, but between 1.0 and 2.0, you know, I was also in college and all of a sudden I have access to high speed internet and right. I, you know, figured out downloading shows. I was not quite hip enough to get in on blanks and postage. So for me, that time between 1.0 and 2.0, my fish fandom went from, you know, being, serious to being like pretty significant because there was like a a, a rabbit hole that I could jump down and actually had the means of jumping down. So I would imagine for you, as well as for me, there was, you know, maybe like a lot of pressure uh, when you were seeing some of those shows. And of course the playing sometimes in 2.0, you'd be crossing your fingers that they, you know, nailed David Bowie or whatever it was. Uh, But it was like a, 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 an era of expectation. And so I think at least that's my recollection. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, and like an era of expectation. I think that's definitely fair because during that late 1.0 period, once I got into them, I was in, you know, when you talk mm-hmm. about going down a rabbit hole, that was pretty much my whole high school experience. Whenever I wasn't doing one thing, I was into fish. That was what else that was always either number one or number two on my priority list. And it didn't let up. It kind of still hasn't in a way. (laughs) But you're right about that era of expectation where 2003 was outstanding. And a lot of people lumped together 2.0 with 2004 as if 2.0 was a huge mess, like Mm -hmm. as as a whole. And it isn't. uh, I'm sorry, 2003 is as good as pretty much any other tour you can mention, especially that February tour. And I, but I loved the road trips, like from Buffalo to Cincinnati is a long trip. It's like seven hours, I think, mm-hmm. especially in February. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it got pretty nasty at some points. And like, I have these cherished memories that, and then it, of course, and going down to Camden without a second thought. Whereas now it's like, oh, well, what day of the week is it? What do I have going on? <laughs> is there someone to watch the dog? Then it was like, oh, they're playing within an eight hour radius. We have to go. Yeah. So 2.0 was a a big feeling. It was a big time of adventure for me and was kind of fulfilling that those fantasies that I read about in the fish compendium and the farmer's almanac of everyone hop into the car and just take off. We'll figure it out later. So for me, that was 2.0 because I didn't have those resources or I don't know, or, or know how in 1.0, I was too young, but then by 2004, I went more out of habit than out of anything else because the music wasn't good to me. I did not like a lot of what they played in 2004. 
Yeah. I mean, I live in Las Vegas now, but my first trip ever to Las Vegas was back in 2004 to those April shows. That was mm -hmm. my first time really traveling, you know, like getting on a plane to go see fish and really making a, a big adventure out of it. And I mean, I'm sure I had a great time, but yeah, the letdowns were, they were there in, in 2.0, obviously. How did you spend the time between 2.0 and 3.0? Because if anything, I found that my level of enthusiasm for fish maybe just continued to grow in that five-year little hiatus or, or breakup because, of course, we didn't know that they were going to come back. How was it for you? I actually had kind of the opposite reaction that I was very much at peace with the fact that fish was broken up and wasn't coming back. Cause I had the distinct thought, I think it was at the first night of great woods. I think it was August 10th, 2004, that if this is how they're going to play, it's better that they're breaking up. Mm -hmm. Like I'm okay with them. I, I like that there's context. I like that there's an ending to this story now, rather than this open-ended story of Trey staring into space with messed up hair looking to nowhere, playing with his pedals, which is what I was paying about $70 a night to see out of habit yeah. and almost a sense of obligation, which is not fun. And the crowd was gross. Uh, I remember going to, and I'll probably get a lot of shit for saying this, but Saratoga, those legendary Saratoga shows in 2004, I had a mm -hmm. terrible time. It yeah. was so oversold and it was just, I was felt so overwhelmed and upset so during that time in between uh, 2004 and 2009, Fish was all right to take the backseat. I was kind of done with them for a little while. And it was also kind of a golden age of second tier jam band music, you know, it was <laughs> especially in New York City post-college. Yeah, I mean, again, you found yourself literally, you know, in the nexus of the music universe and the jam band scene. I was by that point in time, living in Nashville. And I thought nothing with my mid twenties freedom and lack of responsibilities of yeah, hopping in the car and driving the four to five hours to Atlanta to see like, you know, Mike play with the duo or, you know, going down to Birmingham uh, to randomly see string cheese incident. My appetite for live music was high. Yeah. Uh, it was just trying to figure out ways to satisfy that. That was a little bit of a challenge at times. Uh, how did you feel as we talk about 3.0 then, uh, when they did come back, because did you have some hesitation? Did you have like a little bit of tentativeness or were you confident that, you know, the problems of 2.0 had been addressed and had been healed and maybe things were on the up and up in 2009? By then I didn't care. That was the greatest day of my life. October 1st, 2008 was when they announced it on fish.com with the time-lapse sketch of Heart of um, Hampton, it, that was oh, their, yeah. their, their time-lapse video to announce it. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, she told me that I screamed like a little girl. She was in the kitchen <laughs> and I was in the other room. And she said she'll never forget my reaction, uh. not knowing what I was looking at. <laughs> I remember leading up to it that there were these like breadcrumbs that they got together at someone's wedding. I think it might have mm -hmm. been Brad Sands. I'm probably getting that wrong, but that they played Susie Greenberg at someone's wedding and Trey in a Rolling Stone interview, it was said that he would give his left nut to play. You enjoy myself right. every, every day. And so every single bit of media was causing huge waves in 
I think this is when I discovered PT, you know, fantasy tour. Oh yeah. And everything just like it is now was broken down for meaning. And it's like, it's going to happen any day. It's going to happen. So I was, even though I was a little bit over fish in 2004, when Coventry was over, I was ready to throw my life out the window. I remember a conversation with my girlfriend at the time. We were just getting started uh, to be in a serious relationship. We were in the kitchen doing something for dinner. And I'll never forget this conversation. She said to me that this summer, I don't remember when the year it was, but she said this summer, my dad is turning 60. And I think he wants to rent out a bunch of condos in Stowe, Vermont. They had quite ample means uh, in in Stowe, Vermont, and bring the whole family up for like a week-long vacation for his birthday and just for fun. And I said, great, cool. But just so you know, if Fish ever announces that they're getting back together, I'm going to drop everything and I'm going to that. So this was well before they announced anything. This was uh, like, I'm you like, were just covering was, your bases. Yes. It's like, there's an asterisk next to every plan we ever make <laughs> for the rest of our lives. And so that, so that, like that was said, I was ready for them to come back and hearing Trey going through drug court and here, I know that Mike and Paige and Fishman, they did their here and there sort of side projects, but I had no doubt that they had it together, but as goes Trey, so goes fish. So mm. if he was ready to go, I was ready to go. And it was pretty wild. I remember also being so excited, although to me, and I only bring this up because I'm curious about your reactions. The first handful of shows that I saw, and I didn't go to Hampton in 09, but I did hit up four or five shows in that summer tour. And I just had built the band up so much in the breakup and discovered sort of all of the the big tent pole jams of 1.0 and 2.0 that of course they were getting their sea legs during 2009 and as we'd come to find out for the next couple of years and it was a little bit of a combination of being maybe slightly let down with the actual music but also I was engaged I was buying a house for the first time making plans to get married the rest of life just kind of took over uh, during that time of early 3.0. So I ended up taking a little bit of time off. What was your reaction to 3.0? Were you 100% from the get-go? Yes. Okay. It was, yes. Uh, this was the first time I had just started a teaching job, a full-time teaching tenure track job. And so this was the first time that I had a full professional's master's degree salary in New York and on Long Island in particular. The pay scale is pretty good for teachers mm -hmm. And I also had summers off and a pretty generous vacation schedule. Otherwise, teaching is extremely difficult. But whenever people say, oh, you like those summers off? The answer is, yeah, fuck you. I sure do. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a gift from God. Yeah. And, uh, yeah but, I'm jealous. But yeah, I was, I was 100% in. So 2009, you're right about these expectations. So it shared that with 2.0 in terms of coming back and everyone wants it to be ready from the get-go playing these like, you know, 40 minute tweezers as if it was 1995 again. Right. And that obviously didn't happen. But to me, the big joy of it was they were playing these songs that they were kind of scared to play in 2.0. And so the more shows you went to, the more songs you saw that if you got into them around the time I did in the late nineties, you probably would never see, you know, they stopped playing mound for the most part in 2.0 uh they i know that's not entirely true but for the most part they didn't play fluffhead at all in 2.0 and it's kind of nice 
us to have, you know, your professional life in order. So you could kind of have, have fun and gosh, with a lot of summers off and a little bit of coin in your pocket. Yeah. Those must've been glory days in early 3.0. And there were hints that they were still there in terms of, you mentioned getting their sea legs, like their full potential. Like I remember uh, our Thanksgiving weekend when they played Albany, they played uh, that seven below into ghost or ghost into seven below. And that was, I remember the, I mean, everyone's standing at fish, but it was really a standing ovation after that jam. And that's okay. That's the missing piece of the puzzle. They played good jams before that. I remember, I think it was June 7th early in the tour in Camden. I think they played a really good sand. And so they were like poking holes in this like dress rehearsal feeling or this recital feeling that I think is what Hampton felt like to me. And it's, it, it seemed like behind the curtain, jammy fish is still there and they're just coming out every once in a while, like a person recovering from dementia where it's like, they know where they are for 10 minutes yeah. at a time. I'm like, well, whenever you're there, I'm here. Whenever you decide to come back. And I know it's not decide, but whenever your full jamming self comes back, I'm here waiting for you. What year did you feel like, all right, hell yeah. Like we're, we're at where I was kind of hoping the band would be. Could you identify a year in 3.0 where that maybe switch kind of officially flipped in your brain? It's funny. It was, so I'm a Libra, so I never have a single answer for everything. I always have to balance <laughs> out my first answer with the second. Uh, so at the time it was like every show they were back and that was all that mattered. Right. So I didn't give a shit. Like it was, <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're here. And uh, Hampton and they played like 30 songs in one show and none of them had a real jam. Who cares? It's yeah. fish. And we went five years without them in retrospect though. I think maybe 2010 when they played waiting for Columbus and they played that Zeppelin show the night before. Cause to me, that's fish that I know that's goofy fish with a fun gag that they pull off musically. It felt like a huge party and it holds up to repeat listens. To me, that's what fish means, generally.
And then on Halloween, I was already a big Little Feet fan, but a lot of people around me had no idea what they were about to hear when they saw the Waiting for Columbus fish bill. So I was very excited. And it might be the least of their 3.0 Halloween costumes, either that or uh, I would say Exile on Main Street or maybe David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. But to me, like it was a double album that they covered, which is kind of in line with 1.0. They had they had a I forget his name, maybe Giovanni Hidalgo, that percussion player. So they had guests on there. And to me, that's like all the stuff I love about fish from tapes, like all the stuff that I had to picture in my mind's eye. I was seeing it now in live and in person. So to me, that's when it felt like they were back as the band that I knew and hoped for. Well, let's let's talk a little more specifically about the band. Uh, if you is your favorite member Trey, if you had to pick a favorite member, I think it's Fishman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I I play the drums, and oh, so I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a re- I'm like a recovering drummer. I'll put it that way. So I'm not like an active drummer, but if someone I've made a lot of connections over playing music for most of my life. So I'll get a text every once in a while, like, Hey, my friends and I are jamming. We're renting out a space. Uh, are you free tonight? And I'm in, or I'll nice. go to these open mic jams that are in bars around here where it's guys who are twice my age. They still call me a kid and I'm almost 40, <laughs> but you go there with a pair of drumsticks and it's pretty much karaoke with a live band. If they know the song and you know, the song you get up on stage and play. Mm-hmm. But that's why Fishman, I think, is my favorite because he's so versatile and he's so steady. I feel like you could always count on Fishman. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't worried about Fishman when I was seeing those <laughs> Vegas shows in April of 2004. That's for sure. I'm with you. I mean, what percentage, random question I'm just making up, what percentage of Fish fans do you think would cite Trey as their favorite member? Do you think 80, it's like- 80%. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking like 75, 80%. So that, that tracks, although I don't play the drums, uh, love listening to Fishman and all other things being equal. You know, I'm always trying with my ears to keep an eye on or keep an ear on what Fishman is doing because people don't realize, and it happens in subtle ways, how he can sort of steer and cause jams to pick up the pace, obviously, but also, you know, he can, uh, usually inject some energy in a jam. And when there are big, long 20, 30 minute jams that naturally have inflection points at the heart of those like twists and turns, he's usually a pretty important player. Yeah. And he's very instinctual. I think Trey is more of an ADD kind of student where he'll throw everything at the wall and see what sticks and then go in the direction that he thought was most successful. Fishman is for his speed of playing is a lot more patient where he'll wait and he'll float there, keep on doing what he's doing. And then when once he hears an opportunity, an opening, then he'll go all in. Like he'll think about before he acts, whereas I think that Trey just acts and then catches up with whatever he thinks works. I think Fishman does the opposite. Well, it turns out they're all really good because even well, though, yeah. yeah, love listening to Trey, love listening to Fish, my sneaky pick for favorite band member is actually Mike, just because I love how, you know, melodically he plays. And once he got sort of turned up in the mix, he just adds so much that I feel like most sort of rock bands, you know, you wouldn't think, Oh, the bass player is one of the most interesting ingredients in this band, but. Or the weirdest. (laughs) Well, he's, he's got the, he's got that on lockdown for sure. Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, you, you, we sort of talked about, you know, old tunes, 
that you loved with a picture of of nectar uh, being glide and yeah. were you at coventry you were weren't yes. you so how was that glide wise as i've said on the show i'm very big into stats i love checking my stats especially when i was a newer fan and it was such a joy to talk to Zizix. That, like, it was that a was, great episode. Thank you. That was like a dream come true to talk to this person who I spent hours on his website just for like an analytical introspection. And so I always wanted to hear Glide live. And it was a very, it was like a monkey's paw kind of story when they played it at, at Coventry, where it's like, all right, you'll hear it, but it's going to be the single <laughs> worst song that Fish has ever performed. So I excluded that. After Coventry was over, I, I would convince myself that I still hadn't heard glide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's an interesting and uh, yeah, I don't, I could see the logic inherent in that. Uh, what about a, a new song from the last couple of albums or, you know, the last handful of years that you like irrationally <laughs> and not like just a great new song, but like something that hits you maybe more than the average fan. I love Paige's song. I always wanted it this way. Or as I always wanted it that way. I don't even know. But <laughs> that song, uh, whenever they start it and fans start making beelines for the bathroom or to get a beer, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here from front to back. I want to hear every note that they play on that song. I love how it starts like with the synthesizers and there's just kind of layers and it's almost like a frenetic kind of excitement to that song. Well, it's and it's also, you mentioned Mike playing very melodically. In that song, his bass mirrors the synthesizer it's like do 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 and it's very mm-hmm. planted it's almost like a tony markellis bass line where it's mm-hmm. the same thing until it isn't like forever and ever there have been so many good versions of it and i still don't think they fully cracked it open yet i'm gonna take this chance to make you jealous the one time i got to go to a sound check and meet uh trey i didn't get to meet the other members of the band but i was sitting there with don hart in nashville in 2016 and they spent most of that sound check on night two working on i always uh wanted it this way so it was a few more nights uh, until they actually played it uh, again but yeah talking about i think fall 2016 mm-hmm. because i was the same way when it, back then i was like i they need to play this a, a little yeah. bit more. And so, yeah, that's that's funny to hear you say that. What about an old song that you're not a huge fan of? And like an example of this to me would be like Scent of a Mule or, you know, just because it it is catchy. And in the moment, you're like, all right, cool, cool, cool. But it always, for me, listening back to some of those old like Summer 95 shows, you're just like, okay, all right, I know what's going on for the next like 10 minutes or so of this set. What about you? Well, with, with Scent of a Mule, just real quick, I hear I hear what you're saying there. My, If I had to advocate for it, especially those 1995 versions, the speed in the mule duel in the middle, I just, I can never skip past that. That is, that was a huge part of what brought me in. Uh, But my opinion, I could leave Esther for the rest of my fish going life and not miss a thing. That's an incorrect answer. I regret (laughs) to inform you, you will receive no credit for that answer, but, uh, and you know, I get it. It is a little, uh, hokey. I mean, at the onset with the, with the keyboards that sound like a calliope with a creepy old fair and a carnival coming to town, but I don't know, give me all the soaring, like Trey sustain 
late 80s early 90s kind of guitar tone so yeah, it by, works by the for time me. they get to that i'm already out like i don't care for the story <laughs> it's it's a lot of dream imagery which i don't love as much as the nonsense weirdly in other early <laughs> fish songs i i just don't care for it all right well, if you and I ever catch a show with each other and uh, they bust out Esther, we'll have some different I'll get, reactions. I'll get you but, a beer but, for, for Esther. Okay, you get me a beer great. when they play Glide. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about some of their newer material. How did you feel about Big Boat? I want to ask you this. Uh, I'm popping this question on you as a surprise. And then how did you feel uh, about... Uh, the more recent album that came out at the uh, beginning of pandemic. I'm having a brain fart uh, right Sigma now. Oasis. Oh yeah. That one. Big boat. Mm, uneven. I thought it was uneven at best as an album uh, and as a collection of songs, which I guess that's what an album is, but, <laughs> it, but they were, I thought like a song like home, for example, sounded better on record than it came out live or waking up dead, which mm. still, doesn't really latch on to anything. I think, I don't think Mike has a lot of authority playing it or singing it really. So um, I, I did love very much Petrichor. I thought that nice. was what time turns elastic was intended to be in a weird way. Like, I think it's this big orchestral reaching for the heavens sort of piece that Trey conducts basically, but it's, it's much more attainable and able to be performed in kind of a four person rock setting where Time turns elastic. You probably do need a full orchestra to have it reach its full peak. Well, since you're so close to New York City, did you happen to see the New Year's Eve show yes. with the rain and the umbrellas? Yeah, nice. and that was outstanding. That was I thought that was art. Like that really is like 3.0 fish at its best in terms of performance and performance value when it comes to New Year's Eve gags. Because I've seen ten in a row at this point. I never nice. miss a New Year's run and. That was one of the tops, uh, although the set that came after it is really what makes me think that Big Boat is uneven because they played a lot of Big Boat songs after that yeah. with, uh, with a like small string section. And it just oh. it wasn't exciting. It it didn't hold up any energy. Yeah, I liked a lot of Big Boat, but the songs that I wasn't a huge fan of, like really, really did drag that down like breath and burning maybe if they played it three times as fast as it ended up on the album <laughs> like then maybe we we might have something you mentioned your first show 12 29 which is just a beastly accomplishment i hope you have that on your linkedin profile somewhere as a teacher <laughs> even though it's not applicable but what are some jams that you're a big fan of maybe that other people would be like oh yeah i remember that one i think it's hard. Uh, I, my first mini episodes on the podcast were about this exact thing where every other episode was an interview with someone. But when I got started, I tried to answer this question basically by touching on specific jams that meant something to me and for what reason. And some of the ones that really stuck out to me were, you mentioned Nashville just before, the Weekapod groove from that show, that kind mm -hmm. of heavy metal, amazing, slowed down, half speed Weekapod groove.
And that show has a lot of uh, significance to me emotionally and personally. I also love, I also mentioned uh, Cincinnati from 2003. There's a 2001 that was played on February 21st. And again, that signaled to me that Fish was back, you know, not 3.0, but 2.0, that there was, the intro was really extended. It had, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, Jesu or Jesu Ode of Joy, something like that, some Bach <laughs> yeah. piece that uh-huh. Trey was playing over the introduction. And it was a perfect, I think it was mid-set kind of come down, but still very exciting. the 2001 from February 21st, 2003. And the definitely the Wikipa grew from, I think it's August 4th, 2015 in Nashville. Yeah. That, and of course that's the infamous or the famous, you know, first second, second jam, jam. Yeah. in a long time. And I've gotten some guff on that one that I don't know what a second jam is, or, you know, I'm not a real <laughs> fan, that sort of stuff. That's that's the nice thing about I just repeat having what such I intense see on the internet, fans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, I didn't write this in our notes, uh, so feel free to say pass. Okay. Uh, but I, I, having listened to your podcast, you know, many times over, I've heard you reference, you know, going to Nashville and kind of that was after your divorce, and without getting like super specific and super personal. I mean, it must have been some sort of calming presence to have this thing, this love of fish that literally carried from your childhood right on through adulthood as these other trials and tribulations were happening. Do you have any more thoughts to, to, to talk about with respect to that idea? Well, they've always been there for me, you know, since I was 14, like since I was getting out of middle school, basically fish has been there. You know, even if they've not been actively touring, whether it was during the hiatus or the breakup, I, there is, and this podcast has kind of turned me on to this idea that you're never going to get to the bottom of it. You're never going to finish. You're never going to say, all right, I've heard all the fish I need to hear. There's always more because I'll hear back from people who uh, on social media or on forums. Oh, how come you, you never heard this, 
this this show? You never heard this jam? What's wrong with you? Right. And it's it's just there's just so much out there. It's so dense. So it's like Inception, where no matter if you're in a dream or if you're awake or who knows, there's this constant that's going to keep you aware and settled. And for me, that's been fish because after my divorce, which was the in the spring of 2015, and I went made crazy plans for that summer. Like I went to fare thee well on a whim, basically. Uh, I, I went to Nashville by myself. I went to uh, Merriweather Post. Uh, what else? Uh, the Man that summer, and then up to Magma Ball, and I just went all over the place to see them, and it was just refreshing. And when I sat down at that Nashville show, I was by myself. A friend was coming to meet me in a little bit, but I sat down next to this guy and started a conversation. And he asked me, uh, you know, how are you doing? What's been going on? And when I told him this is, you know, I'm treating myself to this night as my divorce. And when he heard that I was divorced, he went, oh, congratulations. <laughs> and it was such a different reaction because everyone I knew was like, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have kids? Right. Like that was everyone's reaction. So to hear someone go, oh, congrats. Like this is going to be fun, right? It just, right. It, it vindicated every way that I was feeling and wanted to feel. And the week of Pog was such an unexpected jam. That's what made it even more special. Uh, now, one thing that I am jealous of, uh, because I mentioned I didn't see my first show till I was 18. For me, that was 1999. Back in 1997 in December at MSG, I mean, you were a whippersnapper. I can't think if I, you know, get to my seats at Madison Square Garden for the New Year's run and I'm sitting next to like a 14 or a 15-year-old kid from Long Island. Can you talk more uh, about your first show? Because that still stacks up really highly for you, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I still think it's the best show I've seen, even if I wasn't fully aware of what I was seeing at the time. I had never seen anything like it. To me, a big takeaway from it culturally was everyone is friendlier here than anywhere else I'd ever been. A guy was passing me to get to his seat in the row and he just held up a joint right to my face and he asked me if I <laughs> wanted to hit it. I didn't. I was smart kid. Again, yeah, I was again pretty I'm still very cautious generally, as we mentioned before, um, protective of my wherewithal. And I said no, and he went, All right, well, have a good show. I'm like, that's so polite. Right. <laughs> I had that thought, like, what a nice guy he is. Really inappropriate, but also kind of polite. But in the best way possible. So there was that, but I remember um, that first night I had been to Madison Square Garden before. I'd seen Knicks games and Rangers games. And when I was really little, like Barnum and Bailey's Circus. So I was familiar with the building. I was familiar with navigating through Penn Station and getting up to Madison Square Garden. Like that wasn't a big deal. My parents actually, we talked a little bit earlier about how permissive they were. They let me sometimes just wander around Greenwich Village with a couple of my friends to buy bootleg tapes and go into the old CD shops and wow. get, yeah, and get like, pizza or coffee or whatever. Like I was allowed to just go to New York city for an afternoon to kill time at, at like 13 and 14 years old. So I wasn't intimidated by going to a show by myself, but I remember I knew crossroads. I knew Golgi apparatus. I knew Fluffhead. pretty much anything off Junta or off a picture of nectar that they played. I knew very well. Otherwise I wasn't that familiar. They also played during possum can't turn you loose by Otis mm -hmm. Redding, the blues brothers theme.
And yeah. my friend Danny was having a big obsession with the Blues Brothers at that time. So I thought that was really fun that I knew that song and Danny wasn't there. So my friend Craig and I, who were together, the three of us were good friends. Danny chose not to go. And we were so happy because that meant we could make fun of him when we got home. That they played, <laughs> that Fish played the Blues Brothers and you weren't there to see it. I remember the first time I heard them play that. I'm not sure what show it was, but I knew it was familiar, but didn't instantly place it as the Blues Brothers. But it seemed, you know, so pre-composed, it just blew me away in the moment. So the fact that you actually knew what was going on, you were a heady little 15-year-old Long Islander. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when you go from Billy Joel to The Who to, to Fish, you really <laughs> experienced a lot. <laughs> but yeah. it was it was because even before Fish, I was going to Dave Matthews Band concerts by myself at Jones Beach. And yes, that was very polished. And that wasn't really, they, they were very radio and pop friendly. You know, that was Crash into me and Ants Marching and that era of their career. I still think they were some of the best musicians I've ever seen perform live. And that was a little bit cleaner of a show than Fish was. But I, I still exposed myself to any sort of music I could hear. Because once The Who opened the door, that led to every classic rock band ever, you know, whether it's the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, name it. And then that led me to older blues and then mid seventies progressive rock, maybe like Jethro Tull Mm -hmm. and uh, Rush and stuff like that. So it was this kind of, it was Pandora before Pandora, basically it was the algorithm of life exposing me and fish did a great job of telling me you don't have to like this kind of music because we play everything. And so I, be, I grew very large ears. Yeah, you know, and you know, I think people on the outside would say, oh, all he does is listen to Fish. And we know, of course, that's not true. If you're a big enough music fan to be a Fish fan, you're listening to lots of other things. But I mean, if you were going to pick one specific band to listen to, you're covering a lot of your musical genres and musical bases, you know, by listening to Fish shows across the years, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, they're kind of like, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this, they're kind of like a Quentin Tarantino of music where they kind of borrow from all different kinds of genres and inspirations from the past, package it in their own presentation, where it's very transparent, where you see how they were inspired. And you can make the argument as many have about fish and about Quentin Tarantino, that it's unoriginal, that it's just repackaged, but it is, it's new to you. And so it kind of puts that, that inspiration into the listener in a good, on a good day to kind of research, where did this come from? And if, you do it right, it leads you down the right path, which makes you appreciate both the original and the new package at the same time. And something I think of more and more looking back is how uh, against the stream fish was swimming with respect to what was popular in the early 90s, but especially in the mid 90s, the late 90s. I mean, you think about all of the heavy, serious kind of grunge rock uh of course, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, early 90s, but then things got, you know, in 1999, it was like Limp Biscuit and yeah. Stained and all, you know, I mean, like stuff that was pretty self-serious. And then you have Fish doing their goofy things. Cheesecake. Yeah. <laughs> I was explaining that to my wife the other night for the first time. She was like, wait, what? Cheesecake? Yeah. It's, yeah it's like, All of Fish is an inside joke. That's the bane yeah. of their career. Everything is funny only to them and people who know about it. And that's it. Right. It's weird to everybody else. Yeah. Kind of annoying. Uh, what is your, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, but what are your attendance bias shows and why? 
Well, definitely that Nashville show that I just talked about. So I'm not going to go over that again, but otherwise probably October 8th, 99 or October 7th, 99, which were a pair of shows at the Nassau Coliseum. And the reasons why is number one, it was so close to my house, my friends and I, by this point, so this is almost two years after I first saw them, rather than my one friend who also liked fish, we now found like three more friends who liked fish. So now we were a big group of five. So our high school, our last period ended at 2.05, which is very early now, even as a teacher, I know that. So we're done at 2.05. We all went home, changed our shirts, whatever. And we were at the Coliseum at like 2.40. Wow. Because we, we lived so close. And we got in line. We all had GA tickets. We didn't realize that this was a big deal at the time. We all had GA tickets and we lined up right away. We spent no time at all in the lots. And we got front row to both of those shows right in front of Paige both nights. I still have the, the wristbands for them. And again, this was part of my honeymoon period where everything they played was perfect and and not only perfect, but a masterpiece. And at the And I talked about this on one of my mini episodes on the show. But on the second night, on the eighth, Tom Marshall came out and he sang, we're not going to take it from Tommy. So this was everything. I And I was wearing my Keith Moon shirt, no less, which I still have. <laughs> so it really was kind of this passing of the, the baton or this melding of this is my favorite band being played by my other favorite band. I knew that they covered Quadrophenia and they play Sparks occasionally, but other than those things, their melding with Fish and the Who isn't that tight. But when I saw that, so number one, I was front row. Number two, it was my home venue. Number three, it was uh, my favorite band playing my other favorite band. Number four, it was a guest star. Number five, I was with a bunch of my friends. So it was like everything came together for that perfect night. And number six, you knew that 22 years later, you were going to do a guest hosting episode six on Fish Recaps, and you would talk about <laughs> the night prior, but hey, still close enough yeah. uh, that you knew it was a special show. But the, but the night prior was also extremely special, musically speaking. The eighth was kind of the more fun night, but the seventh mm -hmm. was much better musically, I would argue. And even more than that, 20, what did you say, 25 years, 22 years? I can't 22, do, 22 years, years, yes. When I had Tom Marshall on attendance bias. I didn't speak to him about it during the show, but off mic, I asked him about that night. And he said to me, you may not have noticed this, but I was in like pajama pants and I was barefoot because they, <laughs> I was supposed to come on for the encore, but they called me on toward the middle of the second set. And I had no idea I was about to go on stage. Oh man, that's nuts. I remember seeing him and his daughter come on stage at Hershey in 2000, September 15th. And, you know, then fast forward 19, 20 years, and he's talking with his daughter on his podcast, Under the Scales. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, no, she's grown up. She's like 20 something and out of college. And, you know, this little girl, literally like a little four or five, six year old girl is uh, now all grown up. So just really covering the decades with fish in every possible way. Uh, you had also alluded to 8 4 uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing the Atlanta run, which I know was July 31st and August 1st. So remind me which show uh, August 4th, 2015 is. August 4th is the, is the Nashville show. Oh, nice. Well, I, gosh. Yeah. And that's funny because they played two nights in Atlanta. Then they played in, 
Tuscaloosa and then they came to Nashville and I had to work and I couldn't swing the Tuscaloosa show. So naturally I was concerned that that was going to be like a game hinge bust out or something. And as I recall of the four shows, Tuscaloosa was the one that was, you know, slightly missable. So, okay, gotcha. (laughs) It worked out. You picked a good one to come to then down, down in Nashville. Uh, well, you've talked to a lot of people about, you know, attendance bias and why like certain shows that others might say, yeah, that was, that was a fun show. I was there. So you've talked to enough people. Like, I mean, do you have any insights as to like, what is the tie that binds all of these disparate shows together? Does it come down to me and my high school buddies were in the first row, page side, rage side? <laughs> I mean, how much of it is is that versus is there something else like ethereal or magical kind of happening? I think a lot of it is first shows. I think a lot of it is novelty. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, myself included, attach sentimental value to the first time you see X, whether it's the band as a whole or the first time you've seen a song. Like when I spoke to, I think it was Elisa Alashant from Fish Radio. She caught Sneak and Sally through the alley for the first time after seeing them for 22 years. And we talked about that whole show, but to her, that was kind of the the heart of it. So I think firsts and novelties are really the, the big, like number one reason. Family and friends. Definitely number two. I've loved the times where I've spoken to. uh, There was one episode where it was uh, a father and son that I spoke to about a show at the Gorge. And that was extremely meaningful. Even to me, I didn't even meet these people face to face, but it was, it was such a heartwarming and enjoyable conversation. So family and friends, novelty and first times. And I don't know, uh, sometimes it's just a good story. Uh, A couple of recent ones, are about family, but also in a different way than like going with your son or your father or whoever. A lot of them, it's like tribute songs where uh, recently a guest talked about how he and a friend who had recently passed away, they used to go to fish shows all the time. And this guy made a, after his friend died of an overdose, he made like a promise to himself. He's going to hit every show to see lizards because wow. that was like a, f- a really enjoyable song to both this guy and his friend. And so they wanted to make sure he wanted to make sure he was there for lizards. And his friend always did this goofy little dance that didn't mean anything, you know, other than his own amusement. And he, the, the guest gave his phone to whoever he was with. And he said, here, record me. I'm going to do, this guy Cadillac, that was the name of the friend, Cadillac Ron, who was a battle rapper in LA. And he said, I'm gonna do Cadillac's dance for the encore, whatever it is. And he started doing the silly dance and they started playing lizards. Oh God. And he had been chasing it for years and years. And so sometimes it's just serendipity. Sometimes it's just a really good story. Yeah, that's really one of the special things uh, about your podcast and the stories that, you know, you help people tell is I might read the description and so and so picks a show from 2018. And in my head, you know, I'm thinking, all right, what's what's so special about this? But then when you spend the time and you listen to their story, you almost always come around with a deep appreciation for, you know, their unique relationship with the band and and whatever went down on that specific night. Yeah. And there's even sometimes it's just a fun story, even if the the show isn't very good. Uh, One guest talked about the band's Amsterdam show in 1996, which is pretty 
widely regarded as one of the worst performances they've ever done, Coventry excluded, because they were just too fucked up. They just, <laughs> no song finished. And right. they said they were going to come back on for a third set, and they did. It lasted like 30 minutes, but nothing ever came together, really, the whole length of the show. And it was just a cool story to hear about what it was like to see Fish in Amsterdam in the mid-90s when weed in America was still very taboo and it was still, you know, no one was really talking about, not talking about because normal was around then, but no government was talking about legalization or decriminalization. So to hear just that lens for fans who are now 20 or 25 years old, they were what, born in 1996? Yeah. So like to I've, even look at it that way is, is a good story in itself for the audience. Yeah, a lot of things have changed quite a oh, bit. No, no over, phones over the eras. Yeah, no phones. God, I remember going to, and I talked to you about this show when when I was on uh, going to Star Lake in two thousand. We had to pull over uh, at a gas station and like call our home and ask someone to look up a direction because we didn't have mm-hmm. the right atlas in the glove compartment and we didn't remember exactly how to get there. Even though we, as very clever nineteen year olds, thought that we would of course remember. So yeah, a different a different era to be sure. Putting a podcast together, it's takes work. It's not the easiest thing, even though we all have podcasts now (laughs) post-pandemic. We all develop these hobbies, but it is a craft, I think, and and almost, you know, like listening to fish, part of uh, the enjoyment is just the process itself. How do you get the ideas for, you know, a new episode of Attendance Bias? What's your favorite part of putting it together? Can you just talk a little bit about the process since you've put together a crap ton of them in the last year. The best part about coming up with ideas is I don't have to, the guest does it. Nice. For ideas for the podcast, it's what's one show or jam that's meaningful to you. Well, what does meaningful mean to you? And you do the rest. And then for me, it's once they come up with a jam or a show, we agree on it. And then it's my job. I listen to the show or the jam as much as possible. I take a lot of notes. I usually listen to the show. If it's a full show, I usually listen listen to it two or three times. If it's a jam, usually much more than that because it's less time consuming. I start a Google Doc of notes that I share with the guest. I write out kind of like a um, stream of consciousness of me listening. That person, the guest, adds his or her thoughts on it. And then we record. We don't read the notes necessarily, but we kind of use them as an outline or a jumping off point. It is exciting when someone says, here's a show that means something to me. And that's kind of like, you know, your automatic entry point. It's almost like someone says, oh, hey, I have this free ticket for this thing. Do you want to come with? And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, sure. Why not? I don't have any expectations. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, What's a challenging part of putting together attendance bias? Because again, I'm very impressed at how you are cranking these out. I can sense that you are a responsible, conscientious sort of (laughs) young man. You know, you're not going to shirk any responsibilities here, but uh, it does take some work. And, uh, you know, I would imagine that there are at least a few minor trials and tribulations along the way. The biggest challenge that I face is scheduling and following up with people who reach out to me because I get a lot of messages from people all over the place, whether it's a direct message on fish.net or Twitter or Facebook or email. Hey, I have a great show or I have a great story about, you know, September 29th, 99 at the pyramid. I'd love to talk about it. 
And it's very hard for me to say no. And so I'll say, sure, I'll get back to you. And then more often than not, I don't. So I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to anyone in the world who I told you I would get back to you and I haven't yet. Um, <laughs> but that, it's hard for me. Again. Yeah, it's, I just kick my butt a little bit. It's hard for me to keep on track of how many outlets I have because there's so many ways to be contacted in the digital world. And it's hard for me to keep track of who contacted me when and what story they wanted to tell. And so I just lose track. And more often than not, I just go when some time clears up, the most recent person who contacted me, I get back to them. I take the path of least resistance. Well, and I've always been impressed with our interactions because you are punctual and you're dotting your I's and crossing your (laughs) T's. So, uh, I mean, I know that's something that I've definitely appreciated. Uh, Well, once I start, once I start, like once we agree on a show like you and I, and once I get started on the notes for it, I'm not letting that go. Cause it's like a, catching a tiger by the tail. I'm not letting that go because I've already put time into it. And I, there's nothing I like worse, like less than wasted time. And how are you keeping motivated? Is, is it the process? Do you have some end goal in mind? Uh, what is making the engine t- tick here? <laughs> um, talking about fish. <laughs> nice. That's really it. You know, the, the, what is it? Um, as, a, as an English teacher, you know, one of the oldest cliches is write what you know. In the podcast, it's talk about what you know. When I was, when we talk about our, our fandom in 1.0, when I was absorbing and just soaking up, and I name checked these before, but the Fish Compendium by Dean Budnick and the Farmer's Almanac with like 10 editors and rec.music.fish and the Fishbowl on AOL and the chats there. I was just soaking up and learning so much information, but had limited means to express it because I didn't have a lot of friends, still don't, at least in person, who are into fish. So I need to find people who are, and it's an outlet. And that's really the incredible thing about the time and era in which we live, because I was the same way. I mentioned going to you know 99, uh, a show in the summer with a handful of high school friends. They weren't really into fish. They just knew that fish was a good time. I don't even talk to any of those friends yeah. anymore and, and haven't, gosh, since like the next summer. But the fact that you know, you and I can sort of hang out virtually and talk about fish and we can share some tweets back and forth about shows and jams. It, I think it's really cool because this is kind of, even though we're all clawing over each other to get tickets for shows, this is kind of a niche hobby uh, that we have committed ourselves to. So it is nice to share that experience. Yeah, that's, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, the world becomes very small online in a certain niche. Uh, do you have any dream guests on attendance bias? You've talked to Zizix. Uh, yeah. You've talked to Tom Marshall. Uh, I mean, no, you got to talk to me. That must have been really special. <laughs> uh, who who are you sort of uh, maybe hoping and, and thinking about? One of the last things I did before I was ready to launch was I made a um, an Excel spreadsheet because that's the limits of my technical ability, um, Microsoft <laughs> Excel, with the file name Attendance Bias Guest Wishlist. Mm. And some names on it, it's like a hundred long, but some names are Abby, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Andy Gadiel, mm-hmm. Katie Turr of MSNBC, Jake Sherman. Nice. Uh, Scott Bernstein, who runs Yemblog, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Abby Jacobson, formerly nice. of Broad City. Yeah. Uh, Rocco Baldelli, the former Tampa Bay Devil Ray and current manager of the 
of the Minnesota Twins. He follows me on Twitter. Oh yeah, yo, send it out, tag him when we do this. He's, <laughs> yeah. he, I mean, maybe not during baseball season, but uh, Sean Doolittle, who is a pitcher for the Washington Nationals, who oh yeah, on his glove has punch you in the eye stitched in. Yeah, the list of baseball, you know, coaches and players that I root for is pretty short, and it all ties back to fish fandom. It's basically Rocco Baldelli and Sean Doolittle. <laughs> yeah, and so I have a lot more on there. Uh, Fred Savage is on oh, there as well. I've heard yeah. nothing confirmed, but I've heard that he's a fan. Uh, Dan Cantor, who is uh, formerly, I think, Justin Bieber's musical director. Right. Uh, he's Because he seems very outgoing, but he's very hard to get in touch with. Being associated with Justin Bieber on social media, he has like unlimited followers. Right. So, you know, the more well-known a person is, the more layers there are between them and the public. But that would be great because I feel like these big names like Katie Turr or Abby Jacobson or Tom Marshall, for that matter. When we talk about fish, we're all in the same playing field because we're all yeah. fans. I'm not intimidated by any other fan. Right. It's the ultimate leveling experience. Yeah. yeah. What do Danny DeVito, Fred Savage and Abby Jacobson have in common? Right. Like, well, I know I Danny ask... DeVito was at Coventry. What right. I've heard it's is that he was there for his son that uh... I don't know if he's a fan but I don't know. My first question will be, when is Twins 2 coming out? <laughs> yeah. Does Arnold like fish? Yeah, Do can you, you know? imagine? Well, you live in New York City. You've talked about growing up on Long Island, which now I'm jealous. I didn't grow up on Long Island. I mean, <laughs> don't be uh, jealous. 15 minutes from Nassau, you know, 15 minutes from Jones Beach, 45 minutes from Manhattan, Madison Square Garden. Well, well that's uh, where you... I grew up. It's a very Long Island. It's it's not a misnomer. <laughs> so you might not be that close depending on where you live, just for geography. That's sake. true. Well, you know, maybe you take the the chopper if you uh, live out in the Hamptons. Or, True. You know. Yeah. Get on with Howard Stern. You get right to the garden. <laughs> yeah. But I, were you just seeing music left and right, like during the hiatus or in between these like deep dives in into fish? How has, you know, living in New York City been for you as a musical fan, like away from, you know, away from fish? During the hiatus, 100 percent or the breakup more like. 1000% because at that time there was someone playing somewhere every night of the week for 30 bucks or less. And I could make a list a mile long of bands like string cheese incident, Robert Randolph and the family band, Mo, mm. uh, disco biscuits, Umphreys, tea leaf green, dark store orchestra, uh, Medeski, Martin and wood, Bela Fleck, Ben Harper. Like you could just go down the line and respect to all these bands but they're not fish. Like you don't have to pay $70 in Madison square garden to see them. They're at the PlayStation theater. They're at the lion's den. They're at the Hammerstein ballroom or Irving Plaza, like these small to mid-sized venues where there's really not security because they're really nightclubs that mm -hmm. you walk in, you see the band, you walk out, you could get tickets like the day of. And so in that point of my life, I was seeing every, I was seeing more music almost every night than I ever had. The wetlands was still around. So there, it wasn't hard to do that more recently though, since I have, and you know all about this waking up very early in the morning for my job. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me getting up the time I get up is probably your lunchtime. You know, you get up super early. I know. Well, when does your alarm go off? 5 45. 
That's, I mean, I always joke that anything before like eight o'clock qualifies as early. Although, yeah. yeah, I mean, when my dumb alarm goes off at like one fifty in the morning, which yeah, like that's insane. It will do after the first night of the Halloween run here coming <sighs> up, and I will, I will be at work a couple hours, you know, after coming home. But we do what we have to do, and I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't do that for dark star or I well, no, I didn't at the time. That's the thing. Like I was in my early twenties. I was getting, I was in grad school. So I was also get, I was also doing like part-time jobs to balance it out. Uh, and part-time jobs like retail, you didn't have to be as prepared for that as I do now being in front of 30, 12 year olds at seven fifty in the morning to teach right. them what a simile is, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's hard. But nowadays I usually spend or I see live music usually in one big block. Like I'll save up to see Roger Waters on a Friday night, rather than for that same money could probably send me to probably a dozen small shows spread yeah. out throughout a month. Uh, or I don't know. It's more like feast or famine these days where, you know, whether it's Roger Waters or Willie Nelson, or this summer I'm seeing Wilco and my morning nice. jacket. Cause they, there's a venue like 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes from my house in forest Hills. It's a 10,000 person, small tennis stadium in forest Hills. And the best part of it is my forest Hills where I live is a very residential area. So it's part of the agreement with the venue that all the shows have to end at 10 o'clock, the latest. Right. Not a bad, not a bad I thing love it. when you're, when you're a working stiff like we are, that's for sure. Right. But I'll save up for shows like that more so than go and see maybe two shows every two months or three months, rather than seeing a show every night for like 12 bucks cover. Yeah. Well, that makes, that makes sense. We're all, yeah. we're all doing that, uh, you know, unstoppable march into middle age here and we got to pick our spots. So that yeah. makes good sense. Uh, anything else that you wanted to chat about uh, with respect to attendance bias? I just, as one of your, you know, enthusiastic fans, uh, it's a fun listen. Uh, it's really nice to hear people's stories about jams and about shows. And, uh, you know, this is, one big community I've always been. And I feel like you probably have too. I've always been in it more for the music than necessarily for the deep network of friendship. But that is kind of the silver lining for me is that on top of this music that you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper into, there is this whole cast of characters and group of friends waiting to be met that you can kind of enjoy along the ride. Yeah. It kind of comes as a, Side effect isn't the right word, but a perk, I guess, is really the way to look at it. It's really a, a, a blessing. It's really a great thing that people feel so connected just by hearing me talk to other people about fish, you know, about the, the best thing in the world and hearing their stories. You know, that doesn't, you know, I want to always get in touch, you know, always reach out. At the very least, I'll write back and say, thanks so much for listening. Do you want a sticker? Yeah, at, at the uh -huh. very least, that's what I'll do. If I had anything to say, it would be, again, I'm sorry to anyone who I've teased about coming on the show and haven't followed up. So I, I really don't do it out of disinterest. It's just I get overwhelmed sometimes between the time it takes to put an episode together and then real life on the on the side, by the way, um, right. that that it's I just don't know. I'm not always able to keep track of who contacted me where about what when. So I well, do want to apologize for everyone who's reached out to me that I've said I'm interested and hadn't followed back up. Hey, as someone who listens to your podcast regularly, uh, I'm going to 
I'm going to send you a note if in a couple more months, I don't, I don't hear any, any of those kind of guests. So I'll keep you accountable. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, Hey, thanks for the chat, Brian. Uh, love what you do, love your enthusiasm and your dedication. So, uh, also it's nice of you to sort of peel the curtain back a little bit. I've, I don't even know how many hours I've spent listening to you talk with other people about fish, uh, all time well spent, but it's kind of nice to take a slightly deeper, deeper dive into the process. So appreciate you. Thank you. And hopefully I'll see you next year. We do this again in about a year's time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds like a great plan and congrats on the podcast. It's amazing. Thank you. Thanks so much, Justin. And that's it for today's interview with me, Brian Weinstein, with Justin Bruce as today's guest host. Now, if you added up all the information that I've discussed with our multitude of guests over the course of the past year, I still don't think that we would have enough information to double check and fact check as we did today. So it's going to be time now for a very extensive attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. First, for all of you Billy Joel fans out there, all four of you, the River of Dreams show at Madison Square Garden that I saw with my family that changed my life was on October 12, 1993. Another calendar check. I mentioned that my parents were very permissible about letting me go to concerts with my friends at a young age. As an example, I brought up Stone Temple Pilots with the Meat Puppets at Jones Beach with my friend Tim. That was part of Stone Temple Pilots' Purple Tour. After a little bit of research, I found out that show was played on August 25th, 1994. That means I was 12 years old at the time and days away from starting 7th grade. I guess that A Picture of Nectar is 17 tracks, but I was off by one. The album is actually 16 tracks. I guess that driving from Buffalo to Cincinnati takes about 7 hours, and I just checked on Google Maps. It says that it's 6 hours and 36 minutes, but please remember, this was during February of 2003. So take that six and a half hours, throw in some February weather in the Midwest and around Lake Erie. I'm pretty confident in rounding that up to a solid seven hours. When discussing the time leading up to Fish's return in 2009, I mentioned that there were several breadcrumbs or rumors that stoked the fan base's excitement for a possible return in 2008. One of these was a brief reunion at Brad Sands' wedding. I was right about that. This happened on September 6, 2008, just about a month before the official return was announced. At this wedding, the four members of Fish reunited for their former road manager's wedding to play Susie Greenberg, Julius, and Waste. In that same portion of the interview, I quoted or mentioned a Trey Anastasio interview from Rolling Stone. The article is titled, Trey Anastasio Hints at Fish Reunion. It was written by Brian Hyatt and was published on May 28, 2008. The full quote reads, When Fish broke up, I made some comment about how I'm not going to go around playing you enjoy myself for the rest of my life, Anastasio said with a laugh. Fish and Mike and Paige have been talking to each other a lot lately, and now, it's not that I can't believe that I said that, but it's symbolic of how much I lost my mind or how much I lost my bearings or something. Because at this point in time, I would give my left nut to play that song five times in a row every day until I die. I think I could speak for the fan base to say, thank goodness Trey didn't have to go that far, and that they are still around and playing. Justin told a cool story about hearing Fish practice I Always Wanted It This Way in Nashville, although they wouldn't debut it until a few days later. The song officially debuted live on October 15th, 2016 at the North Charleston Coliseum, a show I was at, and I love that song right from the start. 
When discussing Big Boat and the band's performance of Petrichor on New Year's Eve 2016, I offhandedly said that I didn't enjoy set three because, quote, they played a lot of Big Boat songs after that. Turns out that that set looms larger in my mind than actually happened in reality, because the band played just three songs off the album during that set after Petrichor. They played No Men in No Man's Land, Breath and Burning, and Tide Turns. For the record, the Bach piece that Trey teases during the intro of the Cincinnati 2001 is Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. You've probably heard it if you've ever been to a wedding. When talking about different reasons for people's attendance bias, I mentioned a number of guests and shows. Here's a quick rundown to the guests that were referenced and their respective shows that they chose for the attendance bias episode. Elisa Alashant spoke on attendance bias about seeing Sneak and Sally through the alley for the first time at November 2nd, 2018. The father and son duo that I referenced were Ben and Jeff Fortgang, who came on the show to talk about their family and musical bonds, as well as July 15th, 2016 at The Gorge. The episode about Lizards and Cadillac Ron was with actor Luke Legraff. He spoke about the band's performance of Lizards from July 25th, 2018 at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in San Francisco. And finally, the episode about Fish's lackluster performance in Amsterdam was with Jeff Somar, and the Fish show was played on July 12, 1996 at the Melkweg in Amsterdam. And that's it for today's special episode of Attendance Bias, celebrating our one-year anniversary. I want to take a minute to thank every single one of you for even listening once, listening twice, or subscribing and being a part of the show since its very beginning. I couldn't do it without you. Please continue to listen to the show and spread the word to your friends. Thank you so much. And if you really do enjoy Attendance Bias, please leave a rating and a review on whatever podcast you use to listen. Finally, you can find Attendance Bias on social media, specifically on Instagram and Twitter. If you follow, reach out and I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you again so much for participating, for listening and being a part. And I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.